You're listening to a talk recorded live at Wildfires 2019. Find out more about Wildfires at wildfiresfestival.com or find us on social media. Now, this is terribly exciting because I don't know about this stage thing. And so I walk round, is that right? And I make friends wherever I go, on every side. Oh, it's all around the back. Hi! Hello! You're not feeling left out over here, are you? No, it's amazing. This is such a fabulous event. You know, I didn't honestly know quite what I was coming to. I, at one point, even wondered why I'd said yes. I thought, who are these people? And what are they doing in a field in the middle of May? And so I, my expectations were actually quite low. And now... I'm absolutely loving it, and it's like a little taste of heaven. And, you know, during the worship, just to be a little bit serious for a moment, I had a very clear, I suppose, picture, vision, whatever you like to call it. And in the 1400s in Flanders, there was created the most beautiful altarpiece, and it's called the Ghent altarpiece. And in the middle of the throne, there is a lamb, and the lamb standing as if it were slain. And there were people, and it was because it was the center of the stage, the center of the throne, and there were people on every side in this glorious painting, worshiping God. And I just thought there is a time coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is who Jesus says he is, and that he is on the center of the throne, and he was slain. He's the Lion of Judah, and he's the Lamb that was slain, and he's in the center, and that's what we worship. We worship Jesus. We worship him on the throne, and it's all because of him that we're here in this muddy field, in this improbable place, in the middle of early summer, it's quite cold, and we're here because we want to get ahead of the rest of them, all the men and women on earth, who one day will have to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and every knee will bow, every knee will bow. And I encourage you, even in this moment, that every knee, either physically or metaphorically, you will bow before the fact that Jesus is who Jesus ever said he was, and he is, bottom line, Amazing. Amazing. And you don't, you don't have to be a bunch of Pentecostals to shout back, Amen. Amen. And Amen. And isn't this great fun? This is amazing. And I haven't even started. I, um, there's something a little bit quirky about most of us. And I am, uh, of all quirky people, the quirkiest. And I'm a great collector. And there was, I collect silver. Of course I do. And, um, I, and I have to clean it. But I also collect, when I was a little girl, I collected wildflowers. And now John and I have an even quirkier habit of collecting quotations. I love quotations. I love what other people say, especially if it's about Jesus or about anything relevant to what I'm wanting to listen to. But one of the things we have collected over the years are the famous last words of people as they were dying. And let me give you one or two of them. Luther Burbank in 1926 said, I don't feel good. And that was his last words. (laughs) Paul Claudel, a Frenchman, said, Doctor, with a French accent, obviously, do you think it could have been the sausage? And died. John Maynard Keynes, which is one of my personal favorites, said, I wish I had drunk more champagne. To which I say, yay and amen. Voltaire 
on his deathbed, when asked to renounce the devil, he said, this is no time to be making new enemies. And Oscar Wilde famously was in a coma for a long time and then sat bolt upright, looked round the room, and he said, either this wallpaper goes, or I do, and went. And the seven last words of the church, have you ever heard these? We've never done it that way before. Dear God, prevent, you know, preserve us from that. And then my favorite, Sir David Brewster, a long-time follower of Jesus. I will see Jesus as he is, the lamb upon the throne. I have had his light for many years. I feel so safe, so satisfied. And may that be our song, which leads me effortlessly into the last words of Jesus. Matthew 28, the Great Commission, familiar, towering words. Jesus said, all authority is given to me on heaven and on earth. Therefore, go. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all the commandments I have given you. And lo, I am with you till the end of the age. His commission given, his company guaranteed. And then the final, final, final words of Jesus. Suitcases packed, on his way, about to ascend. Acts 1 and verse 8. You will receive power, he said. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, through Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then he left them. His commission was given. His company was guaranteed. His power was promised, and then Acts 2 happened. Pentecost burst out in Jerusalem, and all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they were off. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. There is something about place, and there's something about being all together. And there's going to come a time in years to come when you and me, just because I'm here for a little while, are going to look back and say, there was a time when we were all together in that one place, in that improbable big top, in the middle of a field, in the middle of May. But it was a place of, on which there was favor. And I came in here not knowing, honestly, quite what I was coming to. And all day, I have felt the presence and the favor of God in this place. It's to do with place, and it's to do with all being together in that place, which is what we are. That was in parenthesis. That was the amplified version. Verse 2. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting, and they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire. Fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. We know the story. We know the history. Then Peter preached. Impulsive, fearful, broken, not as clever as he thought, Peter. Suddenly, sovereignly, experiencing the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, was radically transformed and wonderfully empowered. He preached out of his skin, and 3,000 men and women came to Jesus just like that. 
Oh, dear God, may that be true in this land. Wouldn't it be fun if a day were coming when people know how to preach the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit and thousands of people at one time come to Jesus? And why should they not? Why should we not be raising up men and women who can preach the gospel in power and expect the Holy Spirit to come and hundreds and thousands of people come to Jesus? And it's happened before. It's happened in our land. It's happened 200 years ago. Why should it not be so again? It's an exciting time. And people talk about, oh, you know, the church is in decline. and It's rubbish, people. It's rubbish. It's a delusion of the devil, and it's simply not true. Because in our time... And in our generation, God is on the move. And as you've heard me say before, Aslan is on the move. And we are with him. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And so, and so, the church was born. History happened. History has been happening ever since. The course of world history was irreversibly changed from that day forward. What happened in the streets and the squares of Jerusalem, a little Middle Eastern town as it was at the time, has spilled into the centuries ever since. And for nigh on 2,000 years, there have been glorious inbreakings of the Holy Spirit and of the kingdom of God. Always testifying the Holy Spirit, always testifying, always pointing to God the Father, and to the Lord Jesus, his Son, and our Savior. So not least the history of our own beleaguered land. We talk about Wesley, whose heart was strangely warmed. We talk about him and Whitfield, who tramped the land and set the place alight. And so we would say, spare this country. I would say, as a history teacher one day long ago, I would say, spared us from the ravages of revolution. We were spared from what happened and befell the Russians during their revolution and the scourge of Stalinism. King George VI called the nation to prayer in 1944, and again we were spared. And who of us wouldn't point to the manifest sovereignty of God that he would have that much mercy on this little bunch of islands on the edge of Europe? What an amazing thing that he would. And I don't want to talk politics, and we don't even need to think politics. We're thinking kingdom. We're thinking kingdom. And God, in his mercy, has plans for this land, and we are to be part of the move and the outbreaking of the kingdom of God in our day and way beyond. And it's a wonderful time to be alive. And I will not, I will not be disheartened and discouraged by the gainsayers and the Jobs and the Watsits. Just, it's simply not true, people. We are living in glorious times of enormous potential. We are free to walk our streets and to pray for the sick and to cast out demons and to preach the gospel and to plant churches with great freedom. So let's just do that stuff while we still can. Because there are places in the world where they cannot assume or presume on those things, and we can. It's a wonderful, wonderful time. And we need to long for and cry out for and pray for and fall on our faces for the evangelizing of this nation, for the revitalizing of our churches, and the transforming of our society. And why would we settle for anything less? And do I hear an amen in the house? Yes. Amen. Amen. I knew you would agree. And so, what do we do now? What do we do in the meantime? What do we do? Do we just sit there and wait? Do we just pray our glorious prayers and hang in? No, 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 no. Ever since I knew I was doing this, I've just had this word comes to me over and over. And this week, all the time this week, every day. 
Jesus said, and it's an old-fashioned word, and it's an old-fashioned translation. Forgive me, I walked with dinosaurs. But I like some of these words in the old-fashioned way. Jesus said, occupy till I come. Occupy till I come. And that means, in the vernacular, get busy, people. Get busy. Do the stuff that I would have you do. Represent me. Be my hands and my feet. Preach the gospel. Build churches. Pray for the sick. Cast out demons. Go to the poor. Feed the hungry. Visit the prisons. Have mercy on the people. Be be me and do what I would do if I were walking the earth today because I have equipped you. I have given you the power of the Holy Spirit and in that power that you will do greater works than even that he did. I mean, it sounds almost blasphemous if it were not true, and if it were not in the Bible, and if it were not in print, and if we didn't know that it was so. And so we occupy till he comes. Because you see, you and I, my brothers and sisters, ladies and gentlemen, you and I are the direct descendants of the promises that were made. We are the immediate inheritors of everything that Jesus promised his own disciples We are authorized by Jesus himself at the Great Commission. We have immeasurable wealth and resources at our disposal. And in a sense, everything has changed in 2,000 years. And in another sense, nothing's changed. So here we all are, just like they were, gathered together in one place and waiting on the Lord. And we're here. It's an electric place to be. And we're here to strengthen one another's arms in the Lord to encourage one another to love and good works and to do the things that Jesus did. Because if there's one thing I would love for you to go away with, if you remember very little else, and who says that you won't, we have extraordinary authority as believers. And if we as his people could understand the level of the authority that we carry, we would live a very different way. And it's a wonderful thing. And we're here tonight to remind ourselves of that and to pray yet again and to experience once more the filling and the empowering of the precious Holy Spirit. D.L. Moody, glorious, famous evangelist, American in the late 19th century, and a very sort of slightly belligerent woman once came up to him and said, Mr. Moody, are you filled with the Holy Spirit? To which she said, Madam, yes, indeed I am, but I leak. Don't we all? We need to be filled again and again and again. And I have absolute confidence that that's this evening what the Lord wants. Because we need to experience the power we have promised by Jesus himself and which we badly need if we are to do as Jesus did, to preach the gospel and heal the sick, to bind up the demons, to reel the oppressed, to bind up the brokenhearted, to drive out the demons, to care for the poor, the marginalized, the little, the least, and the lost. Jesus alone is the answer. And anyone in this land who knows not Jesus or who loves him not, who by sin has grieved his heart of love, is without Christ and without hope in the world. Let's be quite clear. He is the only way. He is the only one. There is no other. There is no other name given under heaven whereby we must be saved and everybody else whose paths we ever come across. That's the beginning and end of it, people. And there's no negotiating it. That's what it says. And we believe that it is true. So in order to strengthen your faith 
and steady your nerve and raise your confidence and do all these wonderful things, I want to remind you of one, two, three, four, four things. Okay, you thought I was finishing. Just warming up. Okay. Oh, yes, just warming up. The first thing I want to remind you of is that you and I, we are the people of Jesus. We are the people of Jesus. And as we talk about Jesus, as we sing his name, as we fall on our faces, something happens. Did you notice this evening? Something happened as we talked about Jesus. This wasn't emotion. This wasn't overtiredness. This wasn't something you'd eaten. This was the presence of the Holy Spirit testifying to the name of our precious Lord Jesus. Do you remember Jesus' challenge to Simon Peter? He said, who do people say that I am? And they gave him all sorts of answers. And then he said, but what about you? What about you? He says to us, who do you say I am? And Peter, in one of his finer moments, I might say, came slightly out ahead of the pack. And he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He might as well have said, and you are my hero. For such he truly is. Jesus is our hero. We are the people of Jesus. We are the brothers and sisters. We are heirs with him of the promises of the Father. We have believed him. We have found life in his name. He is irresistibly wonderful, people. He is irresistibly wonderful. Alfred Lord Tennyson, he said of Jesus, his character was more wonderful than the greatest miracle. Dostoevsky said of him, there is no one lovelier, no one deeper, no one more sympathetic, and no one more perfect than Jesus. Cassio in Othello said of Iago what he might as well have said of Jesus. He hath a daily beauty that makes me ugly. Think of the daily beauty of Jesus. And this is one that I very recently discovered. I told you I love quotations. Listen to this. This is Einstein. One of the cleverest men that walked the earth, he said this, As a child, I received instruction in both the Bible and the Talmud. I am a Jew, he said, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. I've been reading John's Gospel. It just, just pulsates. And that's exactly what he says. His personality, this is Einstein, said of Jesus, his personality pulsates in every word. No myth was ever filled with such life. Do you know Einstein also said, if I had my life again, I'd be a plumber. Did you know that? Imagine. I saw it on a hoarding in New York and I sent a picture of it to my plumber and he was most encouraged. Sweet, wasn't it? So, I told you, I'm very strange. And my, but I do love Jesus. I don't care who knows it. Lord Hailsham. Now, he's dead now, but he was the Lord Chancellor of England. And this is my favorite quotation of a man coming to Christ. He was a student at Oxford, and he wrote a book about it afterwards. And he said this about his discovery of Jesus. He said, I had never before thought of a laughing, joking Jesus, telling funny stories, giving nicknames to his friends, holding people spellbound by his talk. I concluded we would have been absolutely entranced by the company of one so irresistibly attractive as a man that people followed him for the sheer fun of it. We are here having so much fun because we're with Jesus. 
That's the, that's the key to this thing. No Butlin's camp ever had this. It's the person of Jesus. And I love what you said about hosting the Holy Spirit. You're hosting the Spirit of God in this place. And Jesus is a part of our company. And then Hailsham concluded, our century needs to recapture a vision of this happy and glorious man whose mere presence filled his companions with delight. Isn't that the truth? Don't you find just being around him fills you with delight? It's too much fun. It's amazing. Amazing. So we're people of Jesus. We could talk about it all night. We're also people of the scriptures. We're people of his word. The scriptures, I would love to remind and encourage you and urge you. The scriptures are our plumb line. The scriptures are the ultimate gold standard. The scriptures are magnetic north. The scriptures are our very life. And we do well to immerse ourselves in them. Because you see, we need explanations as well as experiences. And I love both. We used to teach our youth groups, and you'll forgive me for being so simplistic, and I'm sure you've heard it before. And if you haven't, you need to learn it. And if you're a parent, you need to indoctrinate your children. Don't ever let anyone say you shouldn't indoctrinate your children. You absolutely should. Indoctrinate them with the right things. Indoctrinate them with the doctrine of Jesus. And teach them this thing. The word without the spirit, and we dry up. And you know what that's like. You know what that's like. And the spirit without the word, and we blow up. And blimey, have we seen that too? It's a mess. But with the word and the spirit together, the word and the spirit's married, then we grow up. And then the church will grow to be mature in the likeness of Jesus. Slightly more nuanced is Simon Ponsonby. I'm sure you know his name. He's probably the vineyard's favorite theologian. He's quite amazing. And he works, of course, at St. Aldate's in Oxford. He's very, very clever. He's very, very wonderful. And he wrote this, The scriptures lead me to be a charismatic, and the Holy Spirit leads me back to the scriptures. You can't have one without the other. We need words that illuminate as well as works that illustrate. Moses, leading the Israelites through the desert, said to the people, Take heart, the words that I have solemnly declared to you this day, they're not just idle words, they are your very life. And I think I would go to the stake for that. Jesus challenged his own disciples when they were under pressure. He said, Are you going to leave me? And they said, Lord, where shall we go? Where should we go? You have the words of eternal life. There is no other way. So part of what I want to do is just to reinforce in you, to drive into your spirits the truth of the scriptures and of what we believe. Because we need to be reminded. Paul to the Romans, what do the scriptures say, he said to them? The answer of everything that you could ever struggle with, and I can't imagine for a moment There's a person here who has got some issue or other that is challenging them at this point in their lives. The answer to everything is in the scriptures. How to be scrupulous at work. How to handle your finances. Why to pay your taxes. How to cope with tricky family situations. How to deal with difficult neighbors. How to be married. How to parent. How to pay your taxes. How to run your sex life, your social life, your Sabbaths. It's all in the scriptures. It's remarkable. So how do you do all this? You know, John and I were students, as I say, when the dinosaurs walked the earth, and we were students at St. Andrew's University, which was the center of the Reformation during the 16th century. And in St. Andrew's, men and women were burnt at the stake for the scriptures. 
And the same happened at Oxford, the Oxford Martyrs and Cranmer. They were burnt for the scriptures. And as students, we were told to walk round the cobbles where they were burnt. Automatically, we just walked round them. Out of deference to the fact that a man on that spot had been burnt to a crisp for the Bible, for the scriptures. How dare we take them lightly? How dare we not honor the scriptures for which men and women died in our country and for men of which men and women are imprisoned worldwide for espousing? The scriptures are precious, precious. And we love the scriptures. We're people of the scriptures. We do not take them lightly. And we live, as you may have noticed, in an increasingly secularist, pluralist, humanist, all-round despairing culture. We do. More than ever, we need the scriptures as our secure place. In the 18th century, sailors would lash themselves to the masts of their ships during storms. And we would do well to lash ourselves to the mast of the scriptures in order to withstand the storms upon which we find ourselves embarked. We're people of the scriptures, people of Jesus, people of the scriptures. This is one I like. Flannery O'Connor, she was a Catholic, devout Catholic, um, short story writer, American, died in, I think, the 50s. She said this, the truth does not change according to our ability to stomach it. Isn't that great? People say, oh, well, you know, it's a different time now. It's a modern age. We need to do this. We need to do that. We need to indulge this. We need to understand. This, I, I agree with her. The truth does not change, my brothers and sisters, depending on our ability to stomach it. Rowan Williams, to under, of course, Archbishop of Canterbury, um, before Justin Welby, he said, to understand the scriptures, we need the Spirit. We are people of Jesus, we're people of the scriptures, but we're also people of the spirit. Now I have to confess that at this point, it was not ever so. I came to Jesus when I was a student at St. Andrews, well, just after I graduated from St. Andrews as a student. I grew up in a God-fearing, church-going Presbyterian home, church every Sunday of life, gave my money, I've been giving my money since I was, couldn't speak. I never, my father was a bank manager, he taught us well. I never had reason to believe that God was not who I was always told he was. He was the first person in the Trinity. He was the creator of heaven and earth. We lived in the country and it wasn't hard to look and see that the heavens declared the glory of God on every side. However, it must be said that the person of Jesus and the reality of the Holy Spirit were never explained or understood to me for nearly 25 years. And I only came to personal faith in Christ when I was a student. So I danced the light fandango at St. Andrews for for wonderful years, valiantly fighting off the well-meaning efforts of the Christian Union, which I couldn't bear. Oh, they were so drear. So that was awful. And the first time I did go to Christian Union meeting after I'd become a Christian, and my John was there, we hardly knew each other, and he didn't think I was saved because I was wearing lipstick. And he was actually a natural evangelist, and so he was very determined to talk to me, which is sweet. I mean, the rest is history. But honestly, it was that drear. It was that drear. But they were such good people, and they had special prayer meetings for my soul. And I have to, (laughs) honestly, it made my flesh creep. But gosh, am I grateful. And grateful, too, for the daily prayer of a roommate who prayed for me every day for five whole years until I bent the knee and confessed that the name of Jesus was as it was. 
And if you do nothing else, nothing else, but yes, just applaud that girl. Applaud that girl. And applaud... Isn't that sweet? (laughs) Isn't that sweet? Isn't that the sweetest thing? But one girl, she went back to the Lord after the first few weeks and said, I wonder if she'd promised to pray for me. And she said to the Lord, can I renegotiate? This girl is impossible because she thinks she knows it all. I was, you know, I'd been to church every day. I knew everything. And she just couldn't, she was just despairing. She went back to the Lord and said, look, you know, could we try something easier? And the Lord said, you promised you'd stick in there. And she did for five years. God bless her. I didn't tell her I got saved for six months. I thought I'll keep her praying a bit longer. As God is my witness, I have since been forgiven. I was, I was awful. I was really, really awful. However, and that, what I think I'm trying to say to you is, we talk about praying. We love it. And, you know, if you pray for one soul, and she prayed for a woman that would come to know Jesus and would serve him for the rest of her life, and I'm just so grateful. And if there's one person on your heart, even as I'm talking now, is there a person in your life that you think, I could do that. I could pray every day till that day woman or that man bows the knee and has a life changed and transformed and who knows what God can do. It's a wonderful thing to do. Anyway, that's in parenthesis and not even in a note. However, so I'm saved, okay? I'm saved and I'm on my way to heaven. However, I was raised in an anti-charismatic stable where I was encouraged to take a nail scissors to my New Testament and metaphorically snip out every reference therein to anything that seemed remotely weird. And so, very systematically, I took my scissors and I cut out everything that I found unpalatable. So, um, demons, they never got a look in to start with, so they were out. Uh, Prophecy was very questionable, so that went. Healing was definitely odd, so that was gone. And, of course, tongues was the worst of all. It was a total no-no. So, by the end time I had finished, systematically working my way through the New Testament, I was left with a very disemboweled copy, strangely thin and very ineffective. So that's how I was when I got married, it's not, which doesn't lead to getting married, but it was just how I was. <laughs> and John wasn't great. He was the same. And then we went and did our first curacy down in Canford Magda in the West Country, and it was wonderful, and we were doing youth work. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. We were doing youth work in those days, and it was amazing. We had a wonderful time. We were newly married, having been secretly engaged for four years. So, I mean, this was a reason to celebrate, and we were having a ball, and we were absolutely loving it. And then, just a month or two in, I was struck down with meningitis. Now, I had waited for years to marry John, because in those days I was a little bit older than him, and I had to wait for him to catch up. So I married him, and I was now in my early 30s. He was not. He was in his mid-20s. But he was amazing, and we went to work in a curacy, and we were thrilled and loving it, okay? And then I got meningitis, and I was dreadfully ill, as unto death. And they carted me off to hospital, and my darling John didn't honestly think I was going to live. Nobody did. And the next, the sun, I went off to hospital on a Saturday, Sunday morning. He was required to preach from the lectionary, and the vicar was away, and he had to do it. And the lectionary for that day, the reading and the preaching that he was required to do was John chapter 11, where Jesus went to the tomb of Lazarus, and he said to them, sisters, this sickness is not unto death. And suddenly the scriptures started to come alive. And, of course, it was manifestly true. It was not unto death, and here I am to tell the tale. So that was marvelous. Well, thank you, but that's not the story. That's not the story. Six weeks in, and I was convalesced. Is it getting too long? I didn't look at my clock when I started. Is this okay? People still here? I can't see. Very good. Very good. 
very good. I mean, I'm having fun. I'm just sorry, but you're very sweet. Um, anyway, so I'm six weeks in, and I'm terribly ill, and I've gone to the country to convalesce, and I couldn't get better. Came back home after six weeks, crawled to church one evening. Now, you need to know that the staff of the church where John and I were working were absolutely wonderful, and we adored them all, but they were, oh my goodness, charismatic. They were distinctly charismatic. And John and I, in our youthful ignorance, thought, arrogance, thought we'll go to take up this job because he's working with John Collins, who was to us the Archangel Gabriel and was very good at training young curates, which what we were. I was a curate's wife, which is the lowest form of ecclesiastical life, I can tell you. Um, just saying. And anyway, I, um, I went back to church and John Collins took one look at me. He said, my dear Eleanor, you're not at all well, are you? And I thought respectfully, I thought, you know, John, if that's a gift of discernment, frankly, I am not impressed. I honestly could have told you that. And then he said, well, why don't you come to, to the staff meeting tomorrow morning, Monday, and uh, we'd love to pray for you. And, of course, then my blood ran cold because I thought, I know what they'll do. Monday morning, they'll have me in at the vicarage, wherever it was. They'll sit me down in the middle of the room on a chair, exposed. They'll all be around me. And because it's Monday morning and they're charismatic, they'll be smiley and friendly and sweet. And they'll all be comparing notes about the people that got healed and filled with the Spirit yesterday. So I was dreading it. But John said to me wisely, he said, I did. I thought, they're going to sit down. They're going to put me in the middle. And then they're going to invade my personal space, which I hated. And they're going to put their sticky hands upon my person, which I loathed. And worst of all, I know what they're going to do. They're going to pray over me in tongues. And as you and I well know, if we're honest, it sounds like everybody knitting at the same time. <laughs> Got to be said. It's true. You stop to think about it. It's just what it sounds like. Sometimes a little more musically than others. So anyway, there we are. Monday morning came, and John was wise, and he said, you know, he was the leader, and he said, I think we should go. I think you need it, and I think we should go. So we can't argue. So we went. And it turned out that at that stage, I was far more prophetically gifted than anybody had realized. Absolutely everything I expected happened. <laughs> they were all smiley and sweet. They sat me in the middle of the room, feeling very exposed and uncomfortable. They all moved in as if they were going in for a rugby scrum. They all laid their hands on me, and I swear as the Lord is my witness, they all knitted with more enthusiasm than anyone could imagine. The noise and the clackety-clack and the prinky and tongues, it was just awful. And you know what? I was instantaneously healed of severe meningitis, and there's never been anything since. Never. Never. And it was amazing. It was amazing because God had made his manifest presence felt. He had shown incredible mercy to someone who had been incredibly disrespectful, very rude, very offhand, very dismissive of the precious, precious Holy Spirit. And how could he have been so kind and so merciful and so forgiving and so sweet to me? Oh, it was just fantastic. His empowering presence had broken in. His experienced presence cannot be argued with. Explanation and experience were marvelously married from that day forward. And that's what I'm here to tell you. I'm, I have no idea. What time do you want me to finish? Crumbs. A few more minutes. Let me just tell you quickly. Let me tell you what the Spirit of God does. Let me just remind you of why we adore him as of you. He convicts us of our sin. He pricks us our consciences. He helps us to keep short accounts. He doesn't let us have sin fester and pollute. You know, I have to say, and I'm being really personal, I have been for a while struggling with a relationship um, uh, close by, not John, 
I know what you're all thinking. No. <laughs> With a much more distant relationship. But it's been difficult. And we have, uh, I suppose the truth is, been wronged and misunderstood. And it's been very painful. It's been going on for a long time. And I've done the forgiving thing. Well, I thought I had. Done the forgiving thing. And then this week I read in Psalm 66, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, he will not hear me. And I suddenly realized, he pinpointed this relationship. And to cherish iniquity is to hold it close. And I'd held close the fact that I did feel so hurt and so cross and so angry at the injustice of what had been done and the things that had been said. And it's not just me. I'm sure I'm not unique. But for me, that was a moment. And I suddenly realized that I, the Spirit of God had convicted me of sin in my heart. And I repented. And I said, okay, God, let's get, let's get over this stuff. And we repented and we talked together. And we got through it. And you know, I felt completely different ever since. Tuesday. I've been walking on air since Tuesday. Just because this thing has been removed. And he, he takes it from us. And it's the Spirit of God. I mean, if, if it hadn't been the Spirit, I would never have thought twice again. He convicts us of our sin. And then the next thing he does is he convinces us of the truth. We need morning to night. As I wake up in the morning, I need to be convinced by the Holy Spirit that everything that I have said, everything I've bought into, everything I've believed, everything I teach, everything I would go to the stake for is true. And it's only through the power of the Holy Spirit who reminds me every morning, who keeps my feet to the fire, who steadies my nerve, who persuades me that all is well and that what we believe and what we've bought into and what we've sold out for is the truth. People, we've got the truth. And we're not arrogant and we're not presumptuous. We're deeply humbled. But you and I have the truth. It is truth. All that we believed. He convicts us of sin. He convinces us of truth. He changes us. Samuel said to Saul, the spirit of God will come upon you in power and you will be changed into a different person. The Bible talks about signs and wonders. We're always talking about signs and wonders by which I'm not sure we always do, but the Bible means a sign, a healing or a miracle. And as John has encouraged us, we're going to look for those in a few moments' time. A sign, in fact, makes us wonder. It forces us to wonder. We hear stories and we see things and things happen in our body. And I got healed of meningitis and it caused me to wonder. And I've been in wonder ever since. That's what signs and wonders is about. So let me tell you the story of a young couple that I know well who had a house group. And they used to meet together in the middle of London. And they were all sort of young they were mostly not having children by that stage. They were sometimes newly married. They were young. They were couples. They were, they were friends. And it was a very fun group. It was a group, and they met together, and they used to call themselves the I'm fine group because it, it, they, they got so tired of saying to somebody, how are you? And people would say, oh, I'm fine. And they'd say, it's rubbish. You're not fine. We're not going to be the I'm fine group. So anyway, they had a lovely time. They, I think they read some Bible. They drank a lot of wine, and they had a marvelous time, and they all became huge friends. And then on one occasion, one of the friends went off to the Alps to ski over Christmas, I think it was, and he broke his back on the ski slopes. And he was helicoptered down and then brought back to London by ambulance. He insisted on being taken to his I'm fine group. And his mother laid him out in the back of the car in terrible pain and drove him. He was, of course, going to have some surgery and his back was broken. But she drove him to his group and they took him into the group 
and they didn't know what to do with him. The group was shattered to see him. And this was just nothing they were used to. So they laid him on the floor because he couldn't sit anywhere. They laid him on the floor and they were sweet to him and they talked with him and they loved on him and they fed him wine through a straw. I mean, they did everything a good Christian should do. And then at one point, and then at one point, one bright spark said, um, we ought to pray. And the others said, oh, oh, maybe, okay. So convicted of their sin, they started to pray. And uh, they think like, things like, um, dear Lord, will you teach him what you want him to learn from this? Ugh. poor thing, writhing in agony. And then they said, you know, give him patience and, you know, help him, blah, blah, blah. Oh, nausea stuff. And then in the end, one really bright spark really went out on the ice and said, we ought to pray for him to be healed. And the other, so they didn't know what to do. They hadn't done very much of it. They'd seen it in the front sometimes at their church. So they just laid their hands on him and said, God, will you heal his back? And then he was lifted out of the room, into the back of the car, and taken home. All night long, his back was on fire. It was on fire. He was in agony. So they took him straight back to the doctor, the surgeon, the next morning. They did new x-rays or MRIs or whatever it was. And his back was completely healed. Completely healed. (laughs) Nothing wrong. He was back at work by Monday. He was to have a year off. And he was back at work by Monday. And the point of the story is, any old fool can do this. This was a little group of Christians meeting at their house group whose faith was low, whose expectations were low, who read the Bible and thought we ought to give it a shot. How hard is that, people? If we were to occupy until Jesus comes by actually starting to do some of the things that Jesus wants us to do in the power of the Holy Spirit that he's promised to give us, We could change this land. We could make people sit up and listen. We could do the stuff that he wants us to do. And my goodness, would we see him come? Would we see God back up his act and come in power and do some wonderful things? And Christians need to be known just as not people that smile and wish you well and pray for patience, but people who will lay their hands on each other, who will expect God to come, who will pray for the sick and look for healing, and who will take authority over demons and cast them out in the name of Jesus. I prayed for a friend of mine yesterday, and she'd been under such, such attack for a year in all sorts of dreadful ways. And we were all just together for 24 hours, a little group of us. And we suddenly thought, the devil has come for you to you. And we prayed and we broke the power of the demonic in her life. She was the most amazing, wonderful, long-term Christian woman who had been so afflicted by the demonic that she was in agony, she was in pain, she was, everything was happening. And in a moment, we saw the demons leave and we saw the peace of God come. It's not that hard And we need to be people who will get off our seats, out of our pews, off our pulpits, and out onto the streets, and out into our classrooms, and our schoolrooms, and our places of work, and our factory floors, and pray for the sick, and do the stuff that Jesus wants us to do. Forgive me for being overexcited, but really, we need to get off our little backsides and on with the job. The Holy Spirit does these things, and the Holy Spirit sets us free. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. I met a girl in another country, actually, in another church at a conference, and she was an absolute sweetheart. She was serving, she was leading the sound team, and she was doing everything right. But she was miserable. She was miserable. 
And I said, what on earth is it? And she was angry because of a broken relationship which had been going on for over a year. She was haunted. Her life was overshadowed. She was miserable and she was angry. She said to me, she wrote to me afterwards, the bitterness in my heart was a weed that was strangling me. And so we prayed together. And I encouraged her to confess her sin. And you can't be angry with God, people. It's not a good place to be. And so we prayed and she confessed and I was able, you know, we have the other thing we don't do much of is to hear one another's confession and then to proclaim freedom if any man is in Christ. You know, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And in the name of Jesus and the authority that he's given me as a believer and as his follower, I am able to tell you, my friend, that you are forgiven. And that you are set free. And I saw it happen in front of my eyes. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And she said, I prayed, I asked for forgiveness, I've been completely freed. The relief I have is stunning. I can praise him again, I can trust him again, I can talk to him with joy. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And then, of course, lastly, the Holy Spirit comes upon us. The Holy Spirit comes upon us. The Holy Spirit came upon Gideon. Remember, he was. He was a washout. He was a wimp hiding in a wine press. And suddenly, the Spirit of God came upon him, and he became a warrior that led hundreds. I mean, it was amazing. Wonderful story. And Samson, I mean, he was a slug. And the Spirit of God came upon him. And in his last hour, which was actually his finest hour, he pulled down the temple, you know, pillars and killed the Philistines. I mean, you couldn't come back and question me about, about all of that because it seems very odd. But all I know is that Samson was full of the Spirit of God and God used him and his supernatural God-given strength to win a massive victory over the Philistine enemy. The Spirit of God came upon the um, followers of Jesus at, at, uh, where was it, Corinth, when Paul went and laid his hands on them. He said, have you heard of the Holy Spirit? They hadn't. He said, well, let me introduce you. And laid his hands on them and the Spirit of God came upon them. And they spoke in, you know what, tongues. And this is the promise of Jesus. Because you see, it's for you and me to do this stuff all the time. I had a neighbor. Well, I really am going to stop in a minute. But I had a neighbor. I must tell you about my neighbor. And she was lovely. She'd come to Jesus. She had four small children. She was wonderful. Newly saved. And we had breakfast up in the village one morning and in Wimbledon. And she said to me, I've got this lump in my tummy. You may have heard me tell this story because it's amazing. And you... You know, you can't help thinking about it again. And it was the size of a small grapefruit, large orange, take your pick. And she's, it was free, free floating around her tummy. And she'd had an MRI and they booked surgery. I mean, it was really, really serious. And she was so frightened. She's the mother of four young children, newly come to Jesus. I thought, you devil, how dare you? I was so mad. But rather than actually get really angry and upset in the restaurant, I took her home. And we started to pray. And I mean, it was a challenge. I mean, there's one thing to pray for a common cold or a twisted ankle, but this was a free-floating growth. So I prayed, and the extent of my faith was really, God, will you shrivel this thing? Would you please just shrivel it? It's a new form of prayer, shriveling. So, you know, I, I, I just leave it with you if you ever found it useful. But I've heard of it's happening since. So anyway, I prayed. And they went off for a week, half-term holiday, and then she was going to come back. And on Monday, she had a checkup, and then um, the children were to be told Wednesday. Mother came in Thursday, surgery Friday. Monday morning, she came to see me, and she said, you know, I think it's smaller. 
I said, what do you mean, shriveled? And she said, yeah, 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 shriveled. Wow, that was exciting. Then my faith rose. So I said, well, let's pray again. So we prayed again. Now, of course, my faith was up and I was really going for this. And then she went off for her MRI in the afternoon. And at tea time, she sent one, one of the little children and a page note. I mean, literally a page this size. You can't read it, so it doesn't matter. That size. And it was a full medical notes of this condition and of this growth. And a scrawled across the middle of it in her writing, it's gone. Completely gone. It was amazing. And on the strength of it, the children never had to be told. Mother never had to come, which was probably a mercy for everybody. And then the surgery was cancelled. And I tell you that story like I did the last one because this is just my neighbor. This is what happens when you get to gossip the gospel over the garden fence, as I like to say. It's so, you know, how much, we had a little seminar thing this afternoon and we were saying to each other, how hard is this? How much is there to lose? Okay, so not everybody gets healed every time. But I have to tell you, more people get healed and more babies get conceived when I pray for them than if I don't. It's worth it, people. I had a wonderful note the other day from a woman, a couple whom I prayed for one year ago who were infertile. And I prayed for them and I got a photograph sent to me recently of a three-month-old baby. I mean, literally. We prayed and within a very short while... This baby was conceived. I mean, really. How wonderful was that? How sweet. Well, I want to pray for women even this, morning, this evening. Why would we not? There's power in this place to heal. There's power to do miracles. There's power to heal the sick. There's power to take authority over demons. There's power to do this stuff. And why not? What better idea do you have of killing time on a Tuesday evening than praying for the sick and doing the stuff that Jesus taught us to do? And we need to practice people amongst one another because then we're going to go out onto our streets and our workshops and our places of interest and influence and we're going to start to do it out there where you may find the level of belief is going to be higher than it even is in the church. That's where you see the miracles out on the streets. That's where you see people come to Jesus at the bus stop because they know no better. That's where you see people pray and see legs lengthened in the middle of the town square. It's too much fun, this stuff. I've got a whole other section, but I haven't got time to tell you. But basically, it, the last thing I do want to say to you is, you see, when Jesus sent out his disciples and he sent them out in twos to go and do the stuff, they came back to him so excited. 72 of them went off in Luke chapter 10. Read it. And they went off and they came back and they said, God, we even saw demons, you know, falling in your name. And Jesus, it says, I think it's verse 17, full of joy by the Holy Spirit said, I praise you, Father, for what they're getting up to. And part of why we want to do this stuff, my friends, part of why I think God wants us to occupy until Jesus comes, part of why I think Jesus is saying, get busy, my church. You know, that's what this is all about. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. And we need to get busy because the church of God needs the power of God via the spirit of God in order to pursue the cause of God on the earth today. It's the spirit that galvanizes the church into action, as it did in Jerusalem. It's quite literally the Holy Spirit that inspires, breathes life, new courage into the body of Christ. It's the spirit of God that catapults her people out of their pews and their pulpits and onto their pavements, into the streets of the cities, the lanes of the countryside. 
into your workshops, your homes, your families, across your garden fences, the wards, the workshops, the factory floors, wherever it is that you live and breathe and have your being. The Spirit of God will come, and you are his carriers. We are his carriers, and we are his carriers in a world that is broken and despairing and hopeless and hurting, and we've got the goods. How dare we keep them to ourselves? Why don't we just go out and do the stuff? I tell you, there's no more fun way to waste your life this side of glory than to do the stuff that gives Jesus joy. He gives him joy. If you love me, he said, keep my commandments. Keep my commandments. And those are they. And finally, he sent them out on his mission. You will receive power, he said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, to the very ends of the earth. And that includes every town or village that you named when Tim encouraged us to do that at the beginning of the evening. Everywhere. He'll take us out to do this stuff. And the people of God said, Amen, Amen. Why don't you stand? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, that you are the lamb that was slain. You are in the center of all this. And when we do what you want us to do, when we occupy until you come, it gives you such joy. And so, Lord, we pray now. We pray that you would come by your Holy Spirit upon your church. Come upon the church. Fall upon us, Lord God. We need your power. Because it's all very well to tell the stories and to rejoice in the truths. But the element that we need is the Spirit of God. We're going to look for healing and we're going to pray for one another. We're going to do all sorts of things. However, in this moment, we're going to ask for the anointing of the Holy Spirit on the church. That's what we need. That's what we need. Holy Spirit of God. Would you come, put everything down, think of nothing else. You can raise your hands, but Lord, we're here empty-handed and ready for anything. Holy Spirit of God, would you come upon the church? Would you anoint the men and women in this place? Would you change society? Would you change our cities? our streets, our homes, our neighborhoods because we live in them and we carry. We carry the Holy Spirit of Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. And now we wait for a few minutes. Come, Lord Jesus.